The religious man will constantly look for the proof of heaven and hell, while the atheist man will constantly look to disprove heaven and hell. And they go on like that, locked head in battle, both battling for beliefs that really cannot be proven. Neither the existence nor the non-existence of heaven and hell can be proven. And soon, they'll all be dead, and nobody knows where they will go except they themselves who die. And so the battle continues as it always has. And why should I join either side? If there is a God Almighty, I should imagine him not needing human beings made out of carbon to believe in him. What use to God would our species be? If he loves us, then he'll love us because he chooses to love us, never because he needs us to believe in him. It wouldn't make any difference whatsoever to an almighty God if carbon species breathing oxygen believed in him or not. If he wanted to love the species, then he just would, regardless of their own persuasions. And if there's not an almighty God, then it wouldn't matter if I joined such a battle either. Either way, why would I join such a cursed downward spiral? The truth that we do know for sure is that it is our responsibility and it is in our best interest to live our lives in such a way that creates heaven on earth and puts hell on earth far away. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. That quote by C. Joy Bell C., suggests there is no point to having a debate about God. So let's have a debate about God. Actually, we're not going to have the debate about God on today's episode. We're going to judge the debate that the world is already having about him on today's episode of Indubitably. I'm Kelly. I'm Josh. And this will be the second of our adjudication episodes. Longtime listeners will be familiar with this with our other adjudication episode we did on the Second Amendment several months ago. And during an adjudication, what we are doing is not necessarily arguing for or against any given side, but evaluating the arguments in their best possible light for either side of the issue and seeing how valid they are, how well they hold up to criticism. Right. So today, it's not necessarily our goal to present arguments for or against the existence of God, but take the arguments that are already out there and let you know which ones we think win, which ones we think lose. Because of that, though, if you do want to hear the arguments in their entirety, we're going to be linking when we release this episode in a couple of days, along with it, a YouTube debate between William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens that we think pretty well encapsulates a high quality version of this debate as it's had out there in society. And that video will be linked on our Twitter and our Facebook, which you can find both at Indubitably Pod. So before we get to the arguments of the debate itself, I think in this case, it's going to be important to begin with an overview of definitions and a discussion of meta debate and the challenges that those things might create. We'll start with meta debate, and that could potentially be a new vocab word for many of our listeners. So what is meta-debate? Meta-debate is basically the debate about the debate. And I think that's incredibly important for this particular topic because depending on where the parameters are set, 
each side is either going to gain or lose a lot of ground in terms of what they are allowed to say. You can think of meta debate a little bit like the regulation in any given sport, the size of the courts that they play on, for instance, or how many players each team has. Right. This would be the equivalent of a soccer team being able to convince the referee to let them have a goal that's twice as big as the other team's goal. Or I suppose they would want their goal to be half the size, wouldn't they? <laughs> One thing that differentiates meta debate from setting the rules within sports is that meta debate happens each and every time you're having a discussion, agreeing on the terms of what you're talking about, whereas FIFA kind of already figured that out for soccer. <laughs> and it's important when you're debating any topic to be clear about these sorts of parameters. This is one of the things that distinguishes debates from arguments. Debates have very specific motions that begin these discussions. And typically, once the meta part of the debate has happened, very clearly defined boundaries. We employed some meta debate when looking at the idea of our last adjudication topic, which was on gun control. Specifically, we had questions to answer such as, is this a constitutional issue, which would change what types of arguments either side could utilize in their defense? Or if gun ownership was a positive or negative thing, absent the constitutional question, which definitely had different arguments that could be employed as well. Right. If the gun control debate was a matter of, is gun ownership constitutional, that gives more ground to the side that's pro-firearms. Versus if the topic on hand is, is gun ownership good or bad in general for society, that might give more ground to the opposition side. Another example might be, are we having the debate in the United States or are we having the debate internationally? Again, a gun control debate in the United States probably favors the side that wants to protect the right to own firearms, whereas an international boundary might make it easier for the side that wants to regulate that right. And with that understanding, there are certain aspects of meta debate that need to be employed in the discussion about proving or disproving the existence of God to make sure that all of the people who are engaging in the debate, the conversation, what have you, agree on the terms. And the first such question answered at the meta debate level is, what are we talking about when we talk about God? Right. What, what is a God? Who is a God? Who is she? Who are they? Who are they? <laughs> In this instance, specifically, we're talking about the Abrahamic God. Most of the debates are framed around this interpretation of God, and we'll be using that as well today for the rest of the analysis of the episode. This would be the God of Christianity, Catholicism, Judaism, the Muslim God, that monotheistic, all-knowing, oh, we'll get to that in a second, probably all-knowing, all-powerful entity, not necessarily some other religions that had specific individual deities for lightning or the trees, things like that. And despite the focus on this particular interpretation of God, a lot of these arguments would be applicable to other discussions about God. Mm, but having a clear definition definitely makes the debate cleaner, which is why it's important to, to distinguish this up front. What's also important to distinguish is, even if we've identified this as an Abrahamic God, different people have different conceptualizations of what that means. For example, one of the features that we could argue about is, did God act as a prime mover or is God interventionist? In other words, did God create the universe and then take a step back and just let everything happen? Or is God still around answering prayers, for example, taking an interest in the going-ons of earth and just in general, making sure that things are going well? 
This argument on the interventionist side would likely also include that God is a prime mover, but that he didn't, they didn't just consider job done as soon as the universe was invented. And a lot of people engage in prayer to ask for influence over or control over certain aspects of our day-to-day lives, which suggests that most people believe that God is interventionist. Right. And I think that an interventionist God also, again, makes this debate more interesting. It's a little bit of a cop-out for the God exists side to just say, well, he started things and now he's just stepped back. So we don't need to prove any sort of intention on his part in terms of how the world is playing out currently. Right. If we accept the definition of God as being one that includes intervention, then we can discuss the conditions that the world is in right now and whether or not God is intervening correctly. Another consideration, and this this one is probably a bit more straightforward, is God's status as being omniscient and omnipotent. In other words, all-knowing and all-powerful. And I think this probably brings us to the most interesting question of this debate, which is obviously, could Jesus microwave a burrito so hot that even he couldn't eat it? Well, we may never know. Based on what is most commonly held in most beliefs regarding the Abrahamic God, most people tend to believe that God is both all-knowing and all-powerful. There is also a question, however, of a different quality of God being altruism. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful and created the world and everything in it, is it possible for God to be altruistic without also being an interventionist? And what's interesting about these questions is if you watch the Craig Hitchens debate or most quality debates on this topic, they spend a lot of time arguing about this meta debate, debating about the debate. And so this is a good chance, I think, for us to look at the first set of arguments that we will be adjudicating. But these aren't necessarily individual arguments for or against the existence of God. Rather, These are arguments for the framework of the debate itself. In this case, the definition of what God is. Is God altruistic? Is God interventionist? And right off the bat, we have this discussion of, is God all good? And if he is, then why do things suck down here? Possibly the oft-repeated refrain of, God works in mysterious ways meaning things suck for a reason that ultimately has a purpose towards the betterment of humanity. Uh, God's plan that's just too complicated for us to understand. Furthermore, there's a question about the way that people behave in the world, whether there is or is not a God, because generally speaking, most people believe that humans have free will. Mm -hmm. So the point of these arguments is not necessarily to prove, again, that God exists or not but to lock down exactly what God we're talking about. So for example, if somebody who is a proponent of God's existence suggests that God is altruistic, they need to answer these questions throughout the course of the debate. An altruistic God theoretically would have to be interventionist because you cannot sit back and watch things go poorly on the planet and watch people suffer if you have the power to change it and not change it. On the other hand, if they accepted the fact that God is not altruistic, I think that that sort of undermines the conception that most people have of a God. There is a subset of people who can probably hold some of these competing 
seemingly competing beliefs is true at the same time. And those are the people that believe that God is ultimately good, but allows bad things to happen for specific purposes, which have fun defending that one, I, I guess. And well, and that's where I think that the most common refrain to this is the idea of free will that you brought up. God is good, but as part of his plan, wants to allow human beings the free will to do and live and choose in the way that they would by themselves without his intervention. And so human beings are creating evil in a place where God has decided he's not going to meddle. Ultimately, the free will question is probably one that both sides can agree on, that humans have it. And I think that this discussion could probably be summarized by Epicurus, who said, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? A lot of interesting questions that don't necessarily prove the existence or not, but certainly set up a framework to where we understand the God about which we will be debating. An additional aspect of the meta debate is setting forth what each side needs to actually prove. Obviously, the people who are advocating for the existence of God are going to try to prove that existence. But are the people who are on the other side of that put into a position where they have to prove the non-existence of God? And if so, how do you even do that? And this is what we were talking about earlier when we said that the meta debate sets aside specific challenges for this particular topic. And honestly, this is probably one of the reasons why this debate has happened over and over hundreds, if not thousands of times in various levels of quality, because it's almost logically impossible to prove the non-existence of something. In fact, in the debate that we've linked, Christopher Hitchens points out that the idea of a term atheism or atheist is very unique to God. Why is there a label for not believing in something that has not been proven yet. He says there's no label for somebody who doesn't believe in the tooth fairy. There's no label for somebody that doesn't believe in Santa Claus or unicorns. To address the complexity of having to prove a negative, this seems to be a common challenge that those who do believe issue to people who do not. A quote from Aaron Aerosmith asks, a heathen philosopher once asked a Christian, where is God? The Christian answered, let me first ask you, where is he not? Again, this seems like an impossible burden, but it seems to be very prevalent in all of the discourse around whether or not God exists. And this is complicated by a couple of specific, again, arguments that can happen in this meta debate level or this definitional level. One is the idea that a lot of Abrahamic believers seem to hold, which is that God is all-powerful, and he decided to be unobservable as a test of faith. So if an all-powerful thing wants to be unobservable, we will literally never get to the point with our scientific capabilities to answer this question. That makes this debate really hard to have a conclusion. And because it never has a conclusion, it will probably happen in perpetuity. So it is important to make sure we're having the best possible debate if it's going to happen forever. And speaking of the best possible debate, there is a middle ground here, again, that I think is important to define out of the particular conversation we're about to have. And that would be 
we could have a debate about a belief we're sure God exists versus the belief we are sure there is none. Or we could have a debate about, yes, we believe God exists on one side versus we're just not sure. We don't know on the other side. And this would be agnosticism. Agnosticism speaks a little bit more to the uncertainty. And in some cases, the apathy, the don't know, don't care. Atheism seems to be a very hardline belief in and of itself that these folks are convinced that there is not a God. Agnosticism sort of walks the middle line, which might be a little bit more of a fox molder, I want to believe, but I just can't. I haven't been given enough evidence. Or I don't really believe, but I don't have enough of an opinion about this to adamantly state that there definitively is no God. There's approximately the same number of atheists and agnostics. That being said, the debate is a lot more interesting if we pit believers against non-believers rather than believers against those who are unsure. So for the purposes of this debate, we'll be pitting those that believe in God versus the atheists, not the agnostics. And a final area of definitions or agreements that need to be settled at the meta-debate stage when we're looking at this specific controversy, we know clearly what we're expecting from the side choosing to advocate on the existence of God, but we also need to figure out what the side who says there is no God must defend as well. Right. So we just talked about atheists, where the debate now would be yes, God versus no God. But that seems like a little bit of a cop-out for the opposition side. I think a lot of people would ask, okay, if you don't believe in God, what do you believe in? So again, a question for the framing of the debate is, is it simply a matter of God doesn't exist and we don't know what does, or are we having a debate between existence of God and alternative? And I think for most people, that alternative would be science. And that also presents some interesting additional disputes that may happen in this debate, because there are people who are very firm that science and religion do not coexist very well and perhaps are exclusionary of each other. And therefore, if you believe in one, you cannot believe in the other. And there are also people who believe that science and religion can work in concert and don't necessarily preclude each other. And there's some at least logically sound evidence to suggest that religion and science can work in tandem. We have a quote by a certain individual, who I will leave it up to you to guess, that says, he who thinks half-heartedly will not believe in God, but he who really thinks has to believe in God. Who said that? Well, you just said it. That's true. <laughs> but also, uh, before me, it was said by Sir Isaac Newton. Ironic, as somebody that was considered one of the grandfathers of science, discovered some of the physical principles that we base science on now, was a very firm believer in the existence of God. Another scientist who also has comments on spirituality is my imaginary grandpa, Carl Sagan. He says, science is not only compatible with spirituality, it is a profound source of spirituality. When we recognize our place in an immensity of light years and in the passage of ages, when we grasp the intricacy, beauty, and subtlety of life, then that soaring feeling, that sense of elation and humility combined is surely spiritual. So are our emotions in the presence of great art or music or literature or acts of exemplary selfless courage, such as those of Mohandas Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. 
the notion that science and spirituality are somehow mutually exclusive does a disservice to both. So we have two pretty well-respected thinkers, one in Sir Isaac Newton that thinks that science comes from God, and therefore they work in tandem in that manner, and Carl Sagan thinking that spirituality has its root in science. So certainly there's a lot of proponents out there that that suggest that these two things can work together, and we'll talk about that in specific through some of the arguments. But again, sort of like the agnostic thing, I think that the more interesting debate hits God versus science. There's a purity in antagonism for debate as an art form, where when we eliminate the possibility of a middle ground and really pit two sides against each other, we can have a cleaner discussion and hopefully afterwards look back at it with some more profound revelations. And therefore, if we're analyzing the arguments that advocate for the existence of God, we also need to look at some of the criticisms from the other side, which argue that God doesn't exist, and some of the positions that atheistic scientific arguments may have wrong with them. All right. So I think at the end of this discussion, we've already debated a lot, and we are now ready to have the debate. So we have we have debated about the debate, and we're ready to get into the real arguments. As a recap, I think what we've agreed with as the most interesting argument would be on one side, that there is a omnipotent, omniscient, and altruistic God. And on the other side, we know that God does not exist, but rather science can explain the complexities of the universe. Is that a fair debate? Well, we'll we'll have to see based on the arguments that come out of it, won't we? Let's move on to those arguments. And I think that the one we should begin with is probably the one that has to do with how everything began. That would be the cosmological argument. This argument centers on essentially the origins of the universe. Did God create the world, the universe, everything, life, etc.? Or was there some sort of scientific event that did not involve any influence from a spiritual being and things just kind of happened in a way that can be explained through physics more or less? Right. And the scientific community is pretty much in agreement on the fact that nothing can come from nothing. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. And if that's the case, they run into a very obvious problem, which is, okay, how did we all get here then? Did we exist eternally, which is what they would suggest? Was there the Big Bang, which we'll get to in a second? Or it sort of feels correct to think that there must be something that exists outside of the physical constraints of our universe that did create everything. In areas where there is a lack of certainty on the scientific level, it seems that there really is no explanation on a logical level other than there being a god in in that space. Right. In this case, it almost seems like the scientific community is proving for the theists that God must be the thing. All of the rules that the scientific community has laid out for how matter works suggest that something separate from those rules must have put all this into place, as opposed to the Big Bang, which is their other solution, which was all of this came from not nothing, but this real little thing that at some point, for some reason, 
catalyzed into an explosion that has now turned into us. We see some evidence that this theory could be correct because the universe seems to be expanding potentially from a central point at which that explosion happened. And we see a lot of things in space which defy explanation, such as dark matter, which would also tend to help justify this theory as being valid in a way that I'm sure a physicist can explain, and I cannot. At this point, though, it's important to note that the major criticism that the scientific community has of the religious community is how much of their beliefs are based on faith. We can't necessarily prove everything that we believe, but we have faith that these things are true. And the reason I bring that up here with the Big Bang is because obviously the Big Bang doesn't even answer the question that it's trying to answer, which is at its core, where did everything come from? And its answer to that is, well, there was a little thing and now it's exploded into everything. But that little thing is part of everything. So where did that little thing come from? So at its very foundation, the Big Bang Theory doesn't theorize or doesn't respond to the question that produced it. And the scientific community has faith that eventually they will be able to explain that missing piece, which to me is problematic considering that missing piece is the biggest piece. Science rests a lot of theories on things that don't have a complete story, and that doesn't make it invalid or necessarily create a space for God. Speaking specifically about the missing link in human evolution, we know which species came on either side of that missing link. We just don't have that link. That doesn't mean that the entire theory of human evolution, therefore, can be attributed to God. And I think that the religious community says, aha, here's one of our strongest points, is the answer for what created that little ball that exploded in the Big Bang was God. And we have, as an example of science working in tandem with God, we are the originators of the theory. So even if the Big Bang Theory is correct, God is the starting point. One thing that that side uses as a gotcha is that if the laws of physics dictate that something had to exist because nothing can come from nothing, then if that's a criticism of the Big Bang Theory, that criticism also has to apply to the existence of God, wouldn't it? So what was the predecessor for God? What originated God? Well, obviously, God's God created God, and, and their God created them. And then there, God created them. It's just turtles all the way down. Oh, I've been watching a lot of Game of Thrones, and I think we all live in the blue eye of a giant. <laughs> the faith community's answer to that, I think, is something I mentioned earlier, which is the Big Bang and the scientific world has to abide by the laws that they've established and of the physical world that we live in, whereas the whole point of a God is that they don't. So the idea that nothing can be created and nothing can be destroyed, matter can't be created and matter can't be destroyed, doesn't necessarily apply to a god. But there is still a missing link there on the religious side of things, which is if there is a something that is capable of existing outside of the rules of the physical universe that we can observe, why necessarily did that something have to be sentient? It's possible that there was something which could have been the catalyzer for the Big Bang that exists outside of this physical world that we can observe, but that something is not necessarily sentient, is not omnipotent, is not omniscient, is not altruistic, is not a god, but rather 
a type of matter that we haven't had the ability to interact or observe with yet? Normally, we save our final adjudication for after we've gone through all of the sub-arguments that can happen on a particular topic. But for this particular issue, we think it'll be more interesting and valuable to hone in on our specific adjudications for each argument. So with this one, Josh, where do you stand on the cosmological argument? Did God create the universe or was there a big bang? I think that if I had to pick a side, I would give this to the God exists side. I think science is just failing in its fundamental responsibility of trying to explain how things were created. But I still think that there's a logical link missing for the God side. And that's like I talked about earlier. I don't think they're able to prove that the thing that exists and created the universe is sentient. So I think that they're probably closer on this one, but don't quite cross the finish line. What do you think? Who's winning the cosmological argument? I would say that the universe is very old and science is very young within that universe. Argumentatively speaking, I'm holding out for the Big Bang Theory to be further developed to further explain the origins of the universe and to come up with more definitive proof. I think we've caught this argument in the middle of when it's happening rather than at its conclusion, which means it's a little unfair to discount one side altogether. So are you saying you think that the scientific side has more potential on this particular argument, but might not be winning it right now? Yeah, I would say so. I don't think that this argument is complete, is essentially what I'm saying. But I would have to give it to science if I have to pick a side. Well, you do. We're judging. That's the point. All right, let's move to the next argument, which is the design argument. And this basically says, everything's perfect. Therefore, it must have been designed. It cannot have come about randomly. And in the YouTube debate that we've linked, William Craig is very reliant on this on multiple levels of the creation of the state of and the evolution of both the universe and humanity. He references multiple times to the odds of the current state of affairs coming about being astronomically small. If you think about that, when it comes down to our particular circumstances, we are on a habitable planet with water and oxygen in the Goldilocks zone where we're orbiting around a star at the exact right distance where we get enough sun to live, but not so much sun that we get burned up. It does seem lucky. Mm -hmm. And the counter to this is no matter how small statistically the chances are of us meeting all of those criteria in a universe that is infinitely large, no matter how unlikely something is to happen, it will happen somewhere. So what do we think? Do we think that the odds being so small require a creator for us to have come about? Or do you think that given the scale of the universe, it could have come about randomly? If we're looking at the argument on the issue of the scale of the universe, the universe being the size that it is, and us being the only life forms like us that we know about, seem to speak to something that doesn't seem statistically possible just by random chance. If there are are so many stars and so many planets out there, why wouldn't there also be life on all of those other planets like us, perhaps life that we could actually have gotten in touch with? Now, again, with the science stuff, perhaps that'll happen in the future. But why aren't there more planets like this if the universe is infinite? Why do we seem to be the only one like this? 
I think the argument there is that because the odds are so small, that even if it has happened in, theoretically, an infinite amount of other places, we would be so spread out that we wouldn't come into contact with each other. And actually, something that might be an interesting episode is there are theories on exactly that of why, if aliens do exist, we haven't come across them yet. It does appear that the way in which life was created might have had some sort of randomness to it. The circumstances were just right at the time for a few things in the primordial sludge to come together and create organic life. But the way that life has developed on this planet was deliberate in the sense that every species wanted to survive and did the best they could choosing their mates, et cetera, to come up with the most viable generations. And ultimately, those generations led to us. Can you believe it? A fish walked on land and now we're here. And this would be, you know, potentially an example of science versus God. Obviously, we're talking about Darwinism and his theories of natural selection. But I think that the God exists side would answer back that even if we believe in evolution, there's nothing to say that that process wasn't put into place by God. So still, theoretically, natural selection resulting in this perfect scenario, the genesis of that process being so statistically unlikely, it must have been designed. There are a couple of answers to that, though. If evolution was a deliberate process that God created, why did evolution lead to so many dead ends where nature tried something that just wasn't suitable for the particular climate at the time, and then that branch of the tree died? That is a good point. The presupposition to this argument is that everything is perfect. It was designed perfectly, but it's clearly not. You mentioned some of these dead ends in the evolutionary process. Also, you mentioned the Goldilocks zone where we're close enough to the sun to have its heat, but not so close that we're going to be burned up. But that's actually not a status that's permanent. We know for a fact that eventually the sun is going to destroy the world. That seems like at least a little bit of a design flaw? Perhaps. My bigger criticism of things being perfect would be things kind of just suck overall. But I think that the sun destroying the world argument doesn't necessarily preclude God. If you look at Abrahamic tradition, there is the assertion that there is going to be a world ending event. And that doesn't contradict the idea of God. Perhaps the Armageddon or apocalypse is the sun swallowing the earth. Mm. And this is where it gets messy when we start using every time science wins an argument, the theistic side can just say, well, that's how God set it up. So that's the reason that science was able to discover that. A little bit convenient on their side, makes the debate a little bit sloppy. But I think argumentatively, it also oftentimes comes into conflict with the idea, again, of God being altruistic. What kind of God is it? If we've accepted that the God we're talking about is altruistic, seems kind of messed up that he's just going to destroy the world at a certain point. If we don't think the God is altruistic, I guess that's not so much of a problem. Another issue of the everything is perfect idea is not just the conditions in which humans get to live, but the humans themselves being imperfect. And if humans are supposedly made in God's image, and humans are imperfect, how does that line up with a God that seems to be all-knowing and all-powerful if we're made in the image of that God, and that God must therefore also be imperfect? Darwin 
through natural selection would suggest that humans are not perfect, but our ability to survive, and in fact, any animals or plants' ability to survive, comes from their adaptability. So we change and we evolve. And so what state of our evolution did our image most closely resemble God? Not sure. Is man perfect? Is the world perfect? Evolution perfect? Is the universe perfect? And if so, did it have to be designed or could it have happened by chance? What do we think on this argument? While I don't think there's substantial evidence that things are perfect, so to speak, the fact that things are more or less ideal for us to be here at all, and that being something that apparently only happens here, seems to give credence to the religious side of things. If there was random chance and the natural order of things that steered life and humans in particular into existence, it couldn't just happen here. And science may come forth and prove what is or isn't out there at some point, but I don't know. I kind of feel special thinking about like God created this just for us. Well, it looks like we're disagreeing once again on another one of the arguments. This time you think that it goes to the God side. I actually think that it goes to the science side. I think that the universe is large enough that there's a good chance we could have happened randomly for one. I think for two, there is a too good of a chance that there are other life forms out there, which undermines a lot of religious dogma. And three, I just think that the world is too imperfect to suggest that an all-powerful, all-knowing being created it. Too many mistakes, in my opinion. All right. Agree to disagree, which we do a lot. So I think we agreed to disagree a long time ago. That's just like a standing agreement for this show. (laughs) But looking through ourselves as the lens to evaluate whether or not God exists brings us to another specific argument, and that is the idea of human consciousness. The fact that we all have minds and thoughts which exist and clearly are in the possession of each individual, but are not readily observable through any scientific means. A lot of people point to that as proof of the existence of God. Yeah, in a lot of ways, our soul or spirit or consciousness, whatever you want to call it, resembles very much a God, insofar as, in God's case, the people that know he exists, we all know that we have some sort of consciousness. We think, therefore, we are. And yet, science has failed time and time again to explain how it comes about and any sort of way of measuring it or observing it. But this is another example, and and this comes up a lot in this debate, of potentially this is merely just the limitations of science currently, and that eventually we have faith as a scientific community that we will find a way to observe this thing that we currently can't? At this point in time, there exists no explanation, and all of the things that make people people do not seem to have any logical basis that we can explain altogether. A quote from ASA Jones states, the most valued attributes of mankind do not come naturally to the human animal. Character borrows from the divine. And there's certainly reason to suggest that as we develop scientifically, we might still never be able to observe this. We're getting really good at mapping out the brain, for example. We know 
what parts of the brain are responsible for what thoughts, but we don't know how those thoughts are created. We know where, but we don't know how. We're able to create at a certain point artificial intelligence. That technology is is advancing rapidly, but we are still clueless on how to imbue it with a consciousness. So even as we develop in leaps and bounds in the area of intelligence, which is presumably the closest that we're getting to consciousness, we have nothing that suggests we're about to discover some catalyst to bring us closer to an understanding of what a spirit might be or a soul might be. With all of that, how persuasive do you find the argument that human consciousness must indicate that there is a God behind all of it? This to me is similar to the cosmological argument insofar as I think that there must be something or some things out there that exist outside of the physical world that we observe and measure and know the rules for. I think that our consciousness is that. And that certainly makes it more realistic that there could be a sentient being out there that occupies that same space. But I still don't think that the religious community has made the link that it has to be sentient. Or in this case, potentially sentient if we think all of us are sentient, but the link that it has to be all-powerful or all-knowing or altruistic. Now, I find this argument to be perhaps one of the most persuasive regarding the existence of God, and I don't think that it needs to answer what kind of God we're talking about in order for it to be strong towards the advocacy of a God altogether. The other issues we have with science, such as the start of the universe and how the world is so perfect for people to be on, have more scientific explanation than consciousness seems to have available to it, which makes me believe that it is very unlikely for science to get to a point where it can fully explain consciousness if if it hasn't so far. But I think that's why the meta debate that we started with is so important, because what you're saying there is that this is the closest we are to proving that something out there exists. But this debate is not necessarily does something supernatural exist? Does something that we can't observe, that's much more powerful than we are, that's been around for a lot longer than we are, that isn't beholden to the rules that we are, does something like that exist? That's not necessarily the debate. The debate is, does a God that cares about us, designed us, is interested in our comings and goings, does that exist? If we had more agency over where we land and where our consciousness exists, we probably would choose a lot differently. I know I would have chosen to be born in Paris, but we are where we are and it seems completely out of our hands. And that just speaks to something outside of our ability to understand. This happens to be where the stork dropped you off. Well, the stork explains the body if you believe the stork brings the baby. But what about the mind inside the baby? Speaking of the mind, the arguments we been covering so far are arguments that are made in defense of the existence of God, along with the rebuttals from the scientific community. Let's move to an argument that actually originates on the atheist side, also in the mind. And I think this would be human psychology. Most scientists would suggest that it's very reasonable that the concept of God has been invented over and over again by various communities, various societies across the globe, 
And that's because the idea of a God fills a, just a psychological need that we have. We can look to human history as far as how cultures developed separately in most cases up till very recently and the increasing understanding of the world, but having so much that was still not knowable or defied explanation that people wanted to have some sort of way to explain. I remember seeing some really beautiful sunsets and the way the light was coming through the clouds in particular days thinking, this must be why people believe that there is a God, because something that impressive and that beautiful just doesn't seem to have any explanation, especially if you don't know how the planets work and things along those lines. So there must be some sort of fundamental human need for when there is no explanation for something to attribute it to something outside of us that has control over those situations, a God, perhaps inventing a God to explain the way the world works. Neil deGrasse Tyson has an interesting quote on this, or at least he references a quote by Ptolemy that says, I know that I am mortal by nature and ephemeral, but when I trace at my pleasure the windings to and fro of the heavenly bodies, I no longer touch earth with my feet. I stand in the presence of Zeus himself and take my fill of ambrosia. And deGrasse Tyson's point of bringing up this quote is that Ptolemy sees God in the stars. He traces at his pleasure the windings to and fro of the heavenly bodies, not in the rocks or the ground or earth, because we can touch the rocks. We know what rocks are. So we don't see God there. We see God in the things that we don't understand, like your sun rays. Well, I understand what the sun rays mean. They don't mean anything. <laughs> they just are. They just exist without purpose. They mean that the sun is getting closer and we're about to be burned up in this perfect design. Like 30 million years from now. <laughs> <laughs> and this brings us to a concept called the perimeter of ignorance, which is literally a boundary where scientists face a choice, invoke a deity, or continue the quest for knowledge. And it's interesting, I think that religion was our first attempt at science, insofar as science is an attempt to understand the world. Hitchens points out that religion was our first attempt at astronomy, was our first attempt at medicine, meteorology, literature. We thought that diseases didn't come from germs, but rather were evil spirits or a punishment. And floods or earthquakes didn't come from shifting of tectonic plates, but rather angry gods that were looking to wreak havoc upon the world. We can observe that through our development as a species, which has a growing understanding of the world, that religion does not seem to be as necessary. We have more understanding of all of the things that we used to attribute to a spiritual origin, and we can no longer give credit to God for those things. If we were to have this debate hundreds of years ago, it wouldn't be does God exist? It would be, do God's plural exist? And that's because societies had so many things that they couldn't explain that it almost seemed incomprehensible that one being could have control or power over all of them. And so they create multiple gods. And I think that in terms of my adjudication for this particular argument, that the trends of society and the trends of religion and beliefs lands this one very squarely on the side of science because 
the more we explain, the less need we have for gods, the more gods just disappear. So now we're left with a single God. And what do we give that God complete credit over? It's the two things that we mentioned in our first two arguments that we can't understand yet, which is the creation of the universe and the human soul. These are the two places where we mostly look to God nowadays. And I also think that we could even look to trends for that God as disappearing. In a very correlated manner to science's progression, we see the number of atheists or agnostics in the world growing as well. So in my opinion, as much as consciousness is an argument that rests very firmly on the side of the believers, this argument rests very firmly on the side of the skeptics. I agree that this is probably one of the strongest arguments against the existence of God, but I will acknowledge that there are many people who take these things, our increasing understanding of the world, and say that they are attributable to the type of God that would steer progress through science, and that strengthens their faith. Or perhaps the decreasing amount of things that are unknown strengthens their faith as well, because the things that are still unknown are so big and so important. Our question of where we even came from is pretty crucial. I'm not as concerned about why the sun looks pretty. So do you think that this is a neutral argument or do you give the win to the religious community then? I do give the win to the scientific community, but I don't think that it will do as much to dissuade people of the belief in God as it might, because if people are rejecting that science precludes God, and this means that science and God can be friends and hold hands in the universe together, that that wouldn't take away their faith. And one of the reasons that People might not accept this as an argument, no matter how strong it may seem, would be the next one on our list, which is the experiential argument. Literally, there are just millions of people out there. I'm not sure what the exact number is, but a whole lot of people out there who believe that they have observed or interacted with this being that science claims is unobservable or ininteractable with. Or they think that they've experienced God and perhaps they're experiencing self-delusion or mass hysteria. <laughs> right. There's a quote by Robert Persage that says, when one person suffers from a delusion, it is called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it is called religion. Is that what you're suggesting here? Yeah, I would. There's a lot to this idea that people have experienced what they consider affirming incidents that prove God to them. But there's no way to really know because we can't get into the consciousness of each of those people and validate those experiences. There are increasing scientific explanations for some of the things that people used to be able to solidly attribute to God, such as people who were close to death seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, whereas we know now a bit more about the process of getting close to death often means your field of vision turns completely white due to, I think, hypoxia. But there are people who see and hear and know things that sometimes defy explanation. But does that mean that there is a God? So do you not think that there's a certain point where enough people have shared an experience that it becomes valid? Like, sure, one person seeing a light, another person hearing a voice, another person seeing Jesus's face on a piece of toast, <laughs> whatever it is, we can dismiss those. But this is an experience that is shared by actually the majority of people on the planet who are religious theoretically at some point have had some indication experientially 
that there is a God, even if that's just a matter of them thinking that the quality of their life believing in God is better than the quality of their life being a non-believer. But doesn't it seem a little bit odd that a lot of people who believe in the Abrahamic God see the Abrahamic interpretation of God and a lot of people who believe in different versions of God or God's plural see the version that suits their context a bit more? Well, that might be just explained by the fact that if God is unobservable, we in our minds have to conceive of it in some way. And so our conceptualization of God is going to manifest itself in the way that we're familiar with. I I think that that one could be explained in a reasonable fashion there. Well, we're relying on a lot of stories that come from other people, but we're two people. Josh, have you ever experienced God? I had a dream the other night about Alanis Morissette. Does that count? Did you just fall asleep watching Dogma again? <laughs> that, that is a distinct possibility. How about you? Have you ever seen God in a on a slice of toast? Hmm. I have not seen God on a slice of toast. I have tasted God in a Cheddar Bay biscuit. God tastes like purple. And what does purple taste like? I don't know. Apparently Cheddar Bay biscuits. You <laughs> no. So do we? Um, do people's experiences count for you? Is this a legit argument? This is an argument that I cannot definitively say falls to one side or the other because it is fundamentally unknowable. The experiences that people have when it comes to what they think they see or what they persuade themselves they're seeing versus what they genuinely experience can't be evaluated by us. So one way or the other, I can't really discount or accept either position on this argument. I agree. I I certainly don't think that this proves the existence of God beyond a concept. I do think that people have interacted with a conception of God. I don't think that we can say that they've necessarily interacted with God himself or herself if they do happen to look like Alanis Morissette. But that does bring us to one interesting argument. Speaking of the concept of God, there is an ontological argument in defense of God's existence. And it runs, you're going to have to hear me out on this one. It runs something like this. God is real because we think that God is real. I'm not following. <laughs> okay. So let's let's explain it like this. There is most certainly a dude in Egypt named Steve. Is that fair? Like there has to be a Steve in Egypt somewhere, right? I suppose it's possible. Steve is real for sure, but I'm scared of the dark. I think that there's monsters in the dark. I'm willing to admit that that's probably not real. But the monsters in the dark actually affect my world more than Steve does. When I get up to go to the bathroom at night, I have to, first of all, find my phone so I can turn on the flashlight in my phone to scare away the monsters until I get to the light switch to turn it on to scare away the monsters until I get to the bathroom. So the concept of monsters are actually more real than Steve in my world insofar as they actually directly impact my actions in my life. So the ontological argument sounds like it falls outside of the constraints that are set forth in the meta debate, because we're not talking about a real God necessarily, but the way that the idea of God has a real impact on people's day-to-day lives. Well, that's part of it. And I think that the degree to which that impact happens in the world is sufficient enough to at least bring up this argument. 
For me, I turn on one cell phone. That's about the impact that monsters have in the dark. But millions of people around the world live their lives based on the presumption of the existence of God. That means world religion, wars, charity, politics. All of these things are based on God. So at that point, even if God just exists as a concept, he is arguably more real than you and I are. He has more of an impact on the world than we do. And I think we're real. This is the point of the episode where if anybody started off by having an edible and they got this far, are probably freaking out a little bit right now. All right. So our last argument that I think is interesting enough to cover here would be Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager ultimately says like, okay, you don't necessarily believe in God and we can't really prove that there's a God, but the fear of hell alone should make you want to believe because the alternative is so bad that it's worth it to just give it a shot and try to believe in God and act accordingly. Yeah, basically, if God does exist, you probably want to believe in him, especially if he's not completely altruistic, say a God that created something like hell, whole separate debate on altruism there, whether or not hell could exist if an altruistic God exists. But anyway, let's say hell exists. You probably want to believe in God so you don't get sent there. And if God doesn't exist, believing in him isn't going to have any negative repercussions. So Pascal's wager basically says, just believe in God. It's in your best interest. Easy decision. This is pretty compelling if you are content with the idea that it's okay if we don't know one way or the other. If you're fine sitting with the ambiguity and just kind of going with it and making yourself believe something which a lot of people probably do. There are probably people who do question their faith from time to time, but the fear of the possibility of hell is so strong that they force themselves to get right with God, more or less, whether or not they know for sure. Right, but even this seemingly convenient argument has a couple of problems. One, again, this goes back to an assumption that we are talking about a particular Abrahamic God. But throughout the course of human history, we have had beliefs in competing gods, a lot of which were angry and wouldn't be super thrilled if we didn't believe in them. So according to Pascal's wager, which of those do we believe in? It's impossible to believe in them all at the same time. One of them is going to get mad. If we get it wrong, we're screwed. Another issue with Pascal's wager is that being afraid of the possibility of hell and therefore deciding it is rational to believe in God does not necessarily mean that you can make yourself believe in God. It's pretty hard to convince yourself of something if you're otherwise logically predisposed not to. Although, under our psychology argument, and I think in a lot of other aspects of human psychology, people lie to themselves all the time. Coming up with a God and filling the knowledge gaps you might have with a concept of a creator because it's convenient or it feels good, just like people lie to themselves about how attractive they are, or how capable they are. I don't know. I think that people might be able to make themselves believe things, even if they didn't originally. I think a lot of the other self-delusion seems to happen a little more subtly. It's something like the Dunning-Kruger effect, where they just kind of come to the conclusion that they are much smarter than they actually are. But to sit down and think, there might be a hell, and I don't want to be tortured there, it may not exist, but the threat of it existing is so so big of an issue, I have to force myself to believe in God is a little bit different than how most people 
lie to themselves, which I think would make it more difficult than convincing yourself of a certain attribute that you have a little more innocuously. So we have got a debate about a omnipotent, omniscient, altruistic, interventionist God on one side and the atheistic community that believes that science has the answers on the other side. And through that framework, we've examined arguments about the cosmos, creation of the universe, the design of said universe and the humans and life forms that live within it. We've looked at human consciousness and psychology. We've looked at the experiences that people have. We looked at a pretty crazy ontological argument and a pretty uh, cowardly Pascal's wager. At the end of all of that, Kelly, what do you think? Any final adjudication on this topic? Putting you on the spot. Does God exist? I've tried to remain pretty neutral in evaluating each of these arguments on their own merit. But when we talk about the overall issue of whether or not God exists, I have to bring into it all of my previous understanding and experiences, which mean I have to talk about my agnosticism. I firmly don't know and ultimately don't care, but I see that there is so much about this debate that probably happens incorrectly, and as such, it is pretty problematic. On the issue of God, people seem so adamant to persuade me that there is a God, but I don't feel nearly as compelled to prove that there isn't. I think for the people who do believe in God, a quote in particular from Evelyn Underhill is, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. Ultimately, the point of God is faith without evidence. And I think people should sit with that. If you believe and feel compelled to prove God to others, is it because in part that they are trying to persuade themselves? Do they have doubts on their own side of the issue of faith? And the idea that we've talked a little bit about in this episode of God and science being incompatible might be a deliberate obfuscation of what is knowable by a God to force the uncertainty and the gaps of understanding in which there is a prerequisite for faith to exist. And if God is real and you can prove it, then there is no need for there to be belief. So if you believe in God and that belief is strengthened by the uncertainties of our understanding and your resilience in the face of skeptics, then you need skeptics more than you need to persuade skeptics to believe what you believe. And Josh, at the end of the day, what do you think about our sky father or sky mother or sky parent? I have a problem with this debate in general, the fact that the debate even happens. So before I adjudicate it, I want to complain about it. (laughs) And one of the things that Christopher Hitchens says is that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. And I think in large part, my personal opinions on the matter fall underneath that quote. The whole thing stems from a really simple fact slash problem about humanity. And that is, we are really bad at accepting or admitting that we don't know something. And this is the genesis of both religion and science, but also the criticism of both as well. I think that both sides need to be more comfortable just admitting that they don't know instead of forwarding as fact the theories or beliefs that they have. As far as if I'm forced to pick a winner for this particular debate, 
Uh, since Kelly, you gave a little bit of a backstory of yourself as an agnostic, I come into this debate as what I would probably call an aggressive atheist. Um, but despite that fact, I think that uh, the sample debate that we've posted was won by William Craig on behalf of God. And I think that there are certainly arguments throughout the episode that lean to the side of some supernatural existence. As I've already said, not sure that it's sentient, not sure that it's omnipotent or altruistic or even cares about us, but something more than what science can explain. As far as the overall societal debate, though, I do think that the religious side is losing, as evidenced by the number of believers shrinking year after year. So I think if we take that as a poll of the world as to whether or not God exists, it seems as though the answer is becoming increasingly no. Interesting that you think that the God proponent won the God debate, where if God actually existed, he probably doesn't need anyone to debate on his behalf. That's true. But as much as God probably doesn't need to care about our opinions, we better hope that he doesn't. Otherwise, we post this episode and I might be in trouble. Yeah, look out and see if like local podcast killed by lightning strike and also the other host also killed by lightning strike. Maybe I should walk back my self-labeled aggressive atheist title. Yeah, maybe just uh, assertive atheist might be a better title instead. Adamant atheist. There you go. 